Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, I have Nikolai Ray. Nikolai is a professor in real estate financial engineering, a fintech entrepreneur, and a real estate investor based out of Quebec who has structured more than $10 billion in multifamily real estate acquisitions. Nikolai is also an ex-hockey player and three-time Olympics human performance coach. So really interesting background. Welcome to the show, Nikolai. Could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Gary, for the introduction. I appreciate being on the show. Well, I mean, the bio is a mouthful. It just shows that I I guess I don't sleep that much. (laughs) So, I mean, essentially uh, what I'm doing right now is I have a fintech company in real estate that I'm building. been doing that for a couple of years now. I also teach financial engineering to real estate investors. So essentially what that is, is just, you know, most people in real estate investing, especially kind of at the, at the mom and pop level or what I call kind of small cap to mid market, say, you know, everyone knows about underwriting and, you know, a bit of financial modeling and, you know, that's kind of what you can get away with. That's cool. Like you have to know how to use an Excel spreadsheet and how to use a DCF model, whatnot. So that's one part of financial engineering. Financial engineering is just, especially in real estate. And this is not to be confused with financial engineering in the stock market where you're working with the Greeks and derivatives and and various things like that. Where in, in real estate, financial engineering is essentially what we're doing is we're taking math to solve problems, right? And what are the problems that we want to solve? Well, we want to solve capital stack issues. We want to solve mismatches between terms and timings of maturity of different things in our capital stack, whether that's equity or debt or quasi-equity. And so what we want to do as well is maximize returns, try and seek alpha, depending on if you believe alpha is something that actually exists or not. And on the other side of that is you want to manage risk. So essentially, you're more on the kind of the beta side of things where, you know, you want to make sure that you're not taking, you know, any unnecessary risks to essentially generate the returns and the wealth creation that you want to get through multifamily real estate investing. And you can do that in commercial, industrial, and everything. My specialty has always just been multifamily. I just like multifamily. I like the way the asset class is set up. I think it's a very important part of our economy. And that's it, I guess, in a couple of minutes. Well, I love, I love the real estate financial engineering piece. And I'm going to simplify it and say it's knowing your numbers. And it's so critical from your underwriting to your business execution to you know, finally exiting, you've got to know your numbers all along the way. You've got to be able to, you know, look at all these different scenarios because things change and you've got to be able to pivot 
to understand where you break even points, like you said, mitigating risk. So it's such a critical factor. Right. And I think, you know, where a lot of people kind of stop that evolution in kind of underwriting and modeling is they, they just kind of take a snapshot and then that's it. Like people will underwrite a deal. They'll do their, you know, they'll use their cruncher or their Excel spreadsheet, do the deal and that's it. But that's not really how financial engineering works where you want to be analyzing deals, you know, ex post and ex ante. So what that means is you want to analyze deals before you buy them. Then you want to reanalyze the deal once you've bought it. And then once you own that deal, you should be reanalyzing that deal and putting your stuff up to date pretty much every, at least twice a year, and ideally once every quarter. And that allows you to not have to time the market so much. That allows you to manage risk and returns because, you know, multifamily, one of the nice things about it is it's a big boat to turn around, right? It's a very big ship. So, but you have to take advantage of that. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't take advantage of that because, it's, you know, just a lack of education, essentially, and lack of habits. So, you know, and I guess I've had the luck to be able to do that, you know, both, I guess, on a professional level and a personal level where, you know, professionally, I built a boutique investment banking firm in real estate where we were doing everything from, you know, buy side, sell side brokerage, financing, financial modeling, tax planning, stuff like that. I then had the chance to work with a couple of very wealthy families, ultra high net worth individuals. And myself, well, I, I've also built a vertically integrated multifamily business where I bought 40 apartment buildings in the last two years and scaled from zero to 40 employees full-time because we're our own property manager. We're our own general contractor. We have our draftsmen in-house and everything. And so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to be able to do it both professionally and personally. Nice. Let's dive into this, you know, being that proactive portfolio manager. You talked about kind of analyzing your deal twice a year. What are the, some of the things that you're looking for you're measuring so that you're on track. Yeah. Well, it comes back down to how you underwrite initially a deal that you want to purchase, right? So, you know, common practice in multifamily real estate is using what we call a DCF model. So a discounted cash flow using an Excel spreadsheet. Now, what that does is then you can pull out, you know, internal rate of return, or if you use one of the variants of internal rate of return, say MIRR or XIRR, you can use NPV as well with your internal rate of return. And you're going to use various metrics like that, which will essentially help you evaluate and determine, should I buy this property? Am I paying the right price for it? Am I putting too much equity, not enough equity? And you know that's how you buy apartment loans, essentially, right? And obviously, there are more simplistic measures like you know, cash on cash and cash flow and stuff like that. But, you know, that's all derivative from essentially doing a DCF model. Now, the weakness in DCF models, what we call financial engineering is garbage in, garbage out. So, you know, the outputs are only as strong as the inputs. Now, unfortunately, we don't have crystal balls, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And a DCF model is based on trying to value something in the present moment based on future assumptions. So what are we assuming? Well, we're assuming a certain growth in revenues, right? In NOI or rents, depending on how you look at it. So you're also trying to predict future interest rates. You're trying to predict, depending on if your model is built on a refi or on a disposition, on a sale. Well, if it's a sale, well, then you're trying to essentially project reversion cap rates. So the cap rate of the property once you sell it. So that inflation is another one that you're essentially projecting inflation as well. I mean... You know, the top economists have trouble projecting inflation two months ahead. Here we are projecting inflation and rent growth and future cap rates, you know, three, five, 10 years ahead in our DCF models. So with statistics and with predictive statistics like that, 
the further you advance in time and further you are away from the current moment, well, you know, the more <laughs> margin of error there is. You know, if you're projecting a reversion cap rate of 5%, well, five years from now, that cap rate could technically, if we base on historicals, could be anywhere between 3.75% and 6.50%. That is a tremendous difference in terminal value of that property, especially if you're talking about a bigger property. I mean, it's a big difference if you're talking about a 12 unit, but imagine if you're talking about a 120 or 250 unit property. I mean, there could be millions to tens of millions of dollars in difference in the terminal value of that property. That completely changes your model. So the reason why active portfolio management is so important, it's a big part of financial engineering, is that we want to update our initial model at least twice a year or every quarter, because what we're doing is we're saying, okay, initially, this is what we thought rents would be. Initially, this is what interest rates would be. And we're just trying to, you know, we're still predicting, but we're predicting as we get closer to that endpoint. thus our predictions are getting more and more precise. And that underlines the most important thing in financial engineering is being precise. A lot of people talk about being conservative. I have conservative underwriting, right? I We're buying at a five cap and now we're expanding that by you know, 15 basis points a year. So we'll be at, you know, whatever, 5.60 in five years. I'm very conservative. Well, you might not be conservative. You think you are conservative because common knowledge and everyone, you know, is just repeating everyone else's stuff on social media and YouTube. But in reality, are you really conservative? Who knows, right? <laughs> you probably are not even conservative. And that's why I have such a caveat with being conservative in underwriting. I prefer to be proactive and precise because conservative, it's just a platitude that doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah, I love that. And I would venture to say that you're much more sophisticated in how you look at this than most of the operators out there. And, you know, so, you know, when we're underwriting deals, you know, Tucson and Phoenix is where I operate a lot. And, you know, I know most of the deals I'm looking at are, let's say, three and a quarter, you know, cap right. rate going in on the T3. But the reports say the cap rates, you know, four and a half, you know, yeah. and I'm like, Find me those deals. I want to purchase those because I haven't seen any. So what tools are you using to help you model this stuff out? Well, that's a great point. And I'll answer that question right after. But, you know, Phoenix is an amazing example I like to use a lot because a lot of people will model, for example, rent growth, right? And the commonality is you'll model rent growth at about maybe 2 to 3%, you know, beating inflation. Well, you know, now inflation is a bit of a funny thing. But up until, say, prior COVID, It'd be normal for people to model maybe two to three, you know, if they were feeling really adventurous, maybe four to five in places like Phoenix, when in reality, what happened? You know, there were years where it was 9% rent growth, right? So what that does is, for example, let's say that the cap rate is four and a half and that you could find a property at four and a half and that it's not a value add deal because in a value add deal, cap rates, you know, they're out the window. You have to calculate them a different way. So let's say it's not a value add deal. It's a core or core plus deal. Well, if you modeled, let's say, even in the most adventurous of times, 4 or 5% rent growth, well, that means that the actual current value that you're estimating of that property based on futures is lower than what it is, than what happened, right? Because rent growth ended up being what, like 8 9%? So you missed out on all of that. And what happened was, well, anyone else who modeled higher rent growth said, hey, four and a half, that's cheap. I'm buying that property, right? And the other one's laughing to the bank. Now that's easy to say in hindsight because that happened. And other people would say, well, what if 
you know, that didn't happen, say you were in Cleveland. Well, you know, that's kind of what makes the difference between good, you know, asset managers and investors and not so good ones is knowing when to do that and how to do that and to have maybe a plan B in case your model doesn't work out. And that's why it's so important to continually model that way you can find out rather quickly if you made a mistake or not and make an adjustment because essentially you're the one operating the apartment building. It's a business. So it's not like you're just passive and just kind of like, oh my God, rent growth is not happening. Well, rent growth is also idiosyncratic in markets where you could have a market where rent growth is 9% or maybe it's 3% and you could get 5% because you're such a great you know, property or asset manager. So to come back to your question, what am I using? You know, constantly trying to pull as much data from as many sources and just plugging that into my Excel spreadsheets and updating that and trying to question what's going on and always looking, you know, ex post versus ex ante, what happened, what's happening and questioning what we thought about it initially. Yeah, you can look at five different reports and they'll all say something different, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I like to just go off comps, right? So, I mean, the reports are all nice. You know, they all, all the big brokerage houses, uh, you know, publish all these reports and whatnot. But what I like doing is I'm still kind of old school. I actually like to get brokers to just send me actual comps. And what I usually do is I'll actually normalize NOI myself. So what that means is, you know, I'll take real expenses, let's say, you know, property taxes, uh, electricity, stuff like that, utilities. But then the other expenses that I call normalized expenses, like, you know, property management, you know, people working on the property. So uh, what we call it, concierge is in French. I can't think of the word in English. And there are various other expenses that I'll model kind of as a bank where I say, hey, if the owner died here, what would it cost us to manage this property, even though I'm not the bank? So that's what I do is I'll normalize that. So I'll end up finding what I call normalized net income instead of net operating income. And then I'll pull out my own cap rates of those properties and try to understand those cap rates, right? Because you talked about a bit earlier, that's three quarters cap rate in a market where maybe it's four and a half. Well, if it's a value add deal or it's a property that has some juice in it, well, yeah, you might be willing to pay 375 in a four and a half cap rate market because you know your actual cap rate on that property is not that cap rate. The cap rate will actually be what you paid plus the CapEx in the first year. And then you'll divide the NOI after that CapEx improvement divided by that addition. That'll give you the actual cap rate of that transaction. So that might actually be a 5% cap rate transaction. It's just that you have to put a bit of work in it to get that delta there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people do get way too hung up on the going in cap rate, particularly oh, not with interest rates so low. Definitely. So where do you target that improved cap rate? You know, is it, are you hit a certain cap rate in year two, in year three, and for value add deals? Yeah. Well, I'm personally a very heavy value add investor and opportunistic investor. So I buy, you know, horrible stuff, crappy stuff. I'll buy abandoned apartment buildings. I'll buy crack houses, you know, that's the kind of stuff I buy. Or I'll buy maybe like a six unit apartment building, but I know is zone 18 that I can just knock it down and rebuild an 18. So that's why I say I'm a very heavy value add or opportunistic investor. So, I mean, the way that I'm looking at it is, you know, I look at what's my CapEx plus the purchase price. I look at what my NOI is after that project is done, whether it's in six months or a year or a year and a half. And then I'll pull my cap rate out of that and be like, okay, what's that cap rate versus market cap rate? Is the delta big enough, you know, is it big enough that it's worth, you know, kind of that sweat that we're putting into it and the risk that we're putting into it? Because, you know, value add and opportunistic deals are 
you know, they're riskier. You have to do some heavy lifting. And so is my cost of capital still making a good deal? Is the risk worth that delta? You know, if I'm doing all that, let's say I'm putting in, I don't know, let's say I buy a 10-unit property and I'm putting in 1.4 million in CapEx in the first four months to bring that up. If the adjusted cap rate or the actual term is yield on cost or yield to cost, if that actual yield to cost or that adjusted cap rate is, say, 525 in a 5% market, well, it's probably not, you know, that's probably not worth it. There's not enough wealth creation that's there. Now, if I'm able to, you know, essentially have that adjusted cap rate and say 5.6 in a 5% market, that's interesting because on top of that, you know, everyone gets caught up in averages. And one thing that I always like to keep in mind, it's a really stupid kind of example or allegory is the story of the six foot man who drowned in the lake that was only five foot on average. The depth of that lake was only five feet on average because averages, you know, don't show the huge disparities that can be, you know, in a five foot deep lake on average, there could be parts of the lake that are only a foot deep and then there could be parts that are maybe 20 feet deep. So a six foot tall man could drown in that lake. And that's the same thing with averages and cap rates. If you look at a market, you know, the reports say, well, it's four and a half percent average. That doesn't mean shit. Like, <laughs> sorry to, to use such strong language. It doesn't mean anything, right? That means there could be things trading in that in that market at maybe 350 and stuff at 550. And the better condition a property is in, well, usually it'll be in the lower range of the cap rate, right? So if you have a four and a half average cap rate market, and let's say the range is four to five percent, well, obviously all the new stuff, the core plus. And the value-add deal that you just completely stripped, gutted, and rebuilt, well, that stuff's probably going to trade closer to the 4% cap rate. So if you were able to buy that property and based on an adjusted cap rate, essentially pay 4.75 or 5%, but now that property is not even trading at 4.5, it could trade at 4.05, 4.1 because it's one of the better properties. Now you have a really nice delta. You've created a lot of wealth, essentially, and a lot of leverage for yourself. That's where it becomes interesting. Absolutely. This is a question I ask all of our guests. What is your asset management superpower? My asset management superpower, my ability to, I think it's the word is synthesis. So I've been an entrepreneur, you know, for 15 years, I've built, you know, many companies. I've had successful exits. I also went bankrupt when I was 25, completely, you know, exploded a very successful company that I built from the ground up. So with my background in, I have a background in biomechanics and preventive medicine. As you said earlier, you know, I went to the Olympics three times as a coach, as a chief of human performance. I was a professional athlete, and I'm also a finance and math guy. So I think the ability to synthesize a lot of things and a lot of moving parts is my superpower. Because you can be really good at financial engineering or underwriting or modeling, but when you're growing a portfolio as fast and doing such heavy lifting and having so many different parts of your capital stack, hard money, your own equity, you know, uh, seller financing, uh, bridge financing, construction financing, mes financing, and then long-term stuff, you have to be able to like, you know, essentially just calculate a whole bunch of things and not just calculate it, but actually, you know, have the vision to see, okay, what's going to happen, what's going on and what's coming along. And that's where I think a lot of, you know, it's the difference between a classical music player and a jazz musician, right? The classical music player can read and play that music and that piece like no one other. And technically is so amazing. But the jazz musician might not be as technical. And, you know, 
There are many people in the finance world that are much more technical than me when it comes to pure financial engineering with, say, Python and R and, and MATLAB and stuff like that. But the jazz musician is able to actually freestyle and riff off of other people, even though he has no music written in front of him. That's, I think, essentially the superpower that I have. Very cool example. And I really appreciate you coming on the show because the bulk of my listeners are more small shop and I don't think analyze deals like you are analyzing. And so this is a great topic. So thank you so much. Please tell the listeners where they can find out more about you. Absolutely. I'm pretty present on all the social media. So Facebook, LinkedIn, I'd say my two favorite Instagram and a bit of TikTok. I'm trying to, <laughs> I, you know, I'm starting to have gray hair in my beard. So TikTok's a bit rougher, as I'm sure you know as well. And I've also opened up my own YouTube channel recently, Nikolai Ray. I actually film a vlog that follows me around my own investments and, and building my companies. And that's probably the best way to find me, for sure. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to start checking out more of your content and, and seeing how you analyze deals as well. That's something I can be a little sharper on. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. And this is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. 